I'm going to read God's Word now, and I'm going to read to Nate from the Gospel to start with, from the Gospel of Luke. Can I just say again, see if, you, if you're able to bring a Bible with you when, when we come to read God's Word. It's good to have the words on the screen, and that works for many folk, but there's something about leafing through a Bible. And as I've said before, it also means if the sermon's dire, you've got a good book to read. So, yeah. Let's read God's Word for starting in Luke chapter 5. Let's hear the Word of God. One day as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, the people were crowding around Him listening to the Word of God. He saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were watching, wash, washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from the shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boats. When they'd finished speaking, he said to Simon, put into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night. We've not caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. When he had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. And all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they'd taken, and so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. And Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. So they pulled their boats on the shore, left everything, and followed him. And then we read from the book of Isaiah, chapter 6, first verse. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of His robe filled the temple. Above Him were the seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two wings they covered their feet, and with two they were flying, and they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. At the sound of their voice, the doorposts and the threshold shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I'm ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken from the tongs of, with tongs from the altar. When he touched my mouth, he said, See, this has touched your lips, and your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here I am, send me. He said, Go and tell this people, Be ever hearing, but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused. May their ears dull, and may they close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. And I said, for how long, Lord? Until the cities lie ruined without inhabitants, until the houses are left deserted and the fields are ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken. And though a tenth remain in the land 
it will again be laid waste. But as with the terebinth and the oak, leave stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump of the Lord in the land. Amen. King of glory, may the words that are spoken and the thoughts that are shared bring glory to you. Amen. Isaiah chapter 6. It was the year that the monarch died. Nothing was going right. There was corruption in the highest office of the land. The politics were rotten. The injustices were mounting. The poor were neglected. And there was trouble and war abroad. So it can't be relevant for today, can it? The Bible's always relevant. It's always speaking to our time from times before. And the bigger mark was this, as we saw last week as we looked at chapter 1, and if you weren't here last week, can I invite you, because I did a bit of an introduction, to go back and have a look at the recording, because we're going to be doing Isaiah for the next few weeks. But the mark was this, All the religious people were doing religious things. They were religiously going to church. They were saying their prayers. They were observing their harvest festivals. They were doing all the things they were supposed to do until God said, stop it. I'm sick of it. I hate your prayers. I can't stand your church going. It's all a farce because it's having absolutely no impact on the way you're living your lives. So here's the question for today. How do we get to the place where we can come into worship and talk about a reality of a God of glory, of a gospel of grace, and actually impact on us, on our lives? And then through us, begin to make any blooming difference to this rotten world around us. How does our worship connect with life? In the temple, Isaiah saw a vision of God high and exalted up. An enormous, huge building, and it was full of God's glory. And and Isaiah says, that was just a little bit of his robe. The point is that God was just so big. We've just sung about that with the children, and, and, and sometimes it doesn't connect with our heads. Our God is our great big God. But sometimes we've got a tiny little one that we sort of put in a box on Sundays, don't we? A great big God. And it had a huge impact on Isaiah that day. You know, Isaiah already believed in God. In fact, we know this because you would expect this chapter to be chapter one, but it's not because Isaiah spent the last five chapters being a preacher, going out and telling people all about God and His judgment and what's happening and and speaking to all of that But it's only in chapter 6 that Isaiah actually has an encounter with God. Other people later on might have well said to Isaiah, that was the year that King Uzziah died. I'll bet Isaiah said, no, that was the year everything changed. Because God showed up. He's told that there are these seraphim, angels, Seraphim literally means flaming ones, and they were 
going around saying, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, the whole earth is full of your glory. It wasn't enough to say the temple was full of your glory. It wasn't enough to say we've had this amazing experience of a great big God in worship and it's, it's made us think differently. It was a realization that every part of life was full of the glory of God. Every part of creation, every part of the politics, every part of the economics, every part of the family life, every part of the workplace, every part of everything was full of God's glory. People sitting, realizing that God was going to be there on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday and Sunday. It's just a completely different way when God shows up. And we're told the temple shook. We'll come back to that. The whole earth is full of your glory. We've just sung that, haven't we? That the king of glory enter me. That word glory in Hebrew is the word havot, and the word havot literally means weight. If God has glory, it's saying God has weight. God is heavy. Now, that's a significant word because we use that word heavy, don't we, not just about physical weight. We use it of importance. It's a heavy matter. I've got a heavy load on me. It's not lightweight. It's a heavy-duty thing. You know what I mean? And it sort of begins to contrast in Scripture that which is permanent composed to that which is temporary, that which is substantial opposed to that which is passing, that which is real opposed to that which is illusionary, a weighty matter, a substantial matter, a havot. Think of it this way. If something like a feather, and you watch it, and it comes down and it lands, it makes no impact on that which it lands. As beautiful as it is coming down in the wind, or a snowflake, it makes no impact. But if a meteor comes down, it changes everything because it has havot. When it crashes into, other things have to get out of the way. Other things are rearranged. It gets noticed. And here's the thing. If we are to have an encounter with a God of glory, a God of havot, then it is going to shake things up. It's going to reorganize our priorities, our view of the world, all the things around us, and it will cause always an earthquake things to shift, to move. You think about it in Scripture, it's always that way. In Sinai, when God showed up to Moses, the whole place shook. At Pentecost, in that day in the upper room, we're told that the building was shaking as the Word of God entered in the Holy Spirit. God changes things. When we encounter God, our perspective changes, our view of reality, of history, our priorities, our values, our morality, all these things shift. We see the world through different eyes because of the glory, the havot of God. Here's the question for us as we come to worship. Is God havot to you? Is He heavy? Or is it light? You see, if God is lighter than you, then God is the one that does the shifting. If God is less real then you shape God. You make Him to fit in with your plans and, and, and your values and the things you want to do. God fits in with that. If He doesn't fit in with that, you cast, cast Him aside. He has to move. You know, do you ever have people who say, I can't believe in a God who? Dot, dot, dot. You get folks saying that? 
there's a problem with it because what you're actually seeing when you see that is I have my beliefs, my values, my morality, and that is more important, more havot, more weighty than God. So when the two collide, God has to shift. He has to fit in with me and what I think. Um, what I think is right and wrong, God must agree with that. The problem with that is that actually, if you look at history, you know that every single generation has its own moral absolutes. You know, we think we know what's right and wrong. We think we know what's important and what's not important. But what do we know from that is that every single next generation comes along and says, you're wrong. So all the things that we're absolutely sure of in our cultural generation today, the next generation will come along and say, what you were doing was absolutely evil, because that's what it's always been. You know, when, when I was at school, we used Bunsen burners. Did, did they still use Bunsen burners at schools? They still use Bunsen burners at schools. It's okay, my illustration is still going to work. Bunsen burners for chemistry, for doing experiments. And when you use a Bunsen burner, is health and safety really important? Yeah? Those that are in schools now, health and safety would be important when you're using something like a Bunsen burner. It was really important in my day too. It was so important that they gave us a slab of asbestos to put underneath it. What's my point? The science changes, of course it changes. The culture changes, everything changes. Do we expect God to change with all of that? The God of the Bible says, when I show up, you change, not me. When I show up, you think differently about your priorities. You think differently about yourself. Everything is rearranged. The huge irony was Isaiah went into the temple that day to meet people, but he didn't expect to meet God. I don't know who he expected to meet, probably his friends, probably the other worshipers, probably the folk he was going to have a festival with or enjoy the food because there's lots of things you did. Maybe the singing was great. He was into the singing. I don't know but he didn't expect to have an encounter with the glory, the weight of God. I wonder when you came to church this morning, what you were looking forward to. Was it an expectation that as we share the bread and the wine, you meet with God? And the angels were worshiping God with those words, holy, 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 repetitive, isn't it? Holy, holy, holy. It's interesting that the Bible uses repetition sometimes for making something that it's saying more substantial, and it quite often will use the same word twice. So, for instance, in Second in Kings, um, it, it, it wants to talk about gold, and we, we might say pure gold, right? But actually, what, what, what the Hebrew says is gold, gold, really gold, gold, golden gold. That's how pure the gold was. Or, or, or there's, a, there's a bit in Genesis where it's talking about pits, and we might see big pits or lots of pits. It says pit pits, pity pits. You know, that's how it emphasizes. But only once do we find it three times. Holy, holy, holy. So it's not just repetition, it's emphasis. God is the holiest of holies of the holies. The holy, holy, holy God. 
And what does that word mean? It means he's beautiful. He's morally pure. He's brilliant. And all the creatures just want to praise him. Not, not because he's done something. Not because, oh, thanks for God for all these wonderful things he's done. That's not what the angels are doing. They're just saying, he's just beautiful. He's fantastic. He's weighty. He's glorify, glo, glo, glory, glory, holy, holy, holy. See, one of the problems with stressing all the things that God has done for me, and very often when we worship and we say, thank you God for this, and thank you God for that, and thank you God for the next thing, is it can quickly become, well, parents don't know what I'm talking about when I say cupboard love. I love you, mummy, because you give me chocolate biscuits. I love you, granny, because you give me five pounds every time I come to see you. And then you think, well, that kid really loves me. And then you ask, well, what happens if I don't give them chocolate biscuits? Or I don't give them five pounds? Do they say, I don't love you anymore? And that's the way we sometimes are with God. We say, I love you, God, because you give me lots of things. You look after me. But that can become not real love. It just becomes, God, I like you to come into my life because I've got my plans and my priorities, my dreams and my ambitions, and maybe you'll help me achieve them. And then people turn around and say, well, I didn't get things in my life that I'd hoped for. I can't believe in God anymore. Whereas these angels come and say, I worship you just because you're you. I love you just because you're beautiful. I love you just because you're holy. Because he's God. And that's what we're called to do as well, to realize that he is satisfying, that he is good. And as Isaiah sees that, he says, Woe is me. He's undone. Because when you see something that is bigger than you, it very often crushes your self-image. You know, maybe you think you're fantastic at something. Dancing. Kid thinks they're great at dancing, and then they go to a dance club and suddenly out comes the prima ballerina, and the kid just feels crushed. Have you had that experience where you're around somebody who is just better at the thing you thought you weren't bad at, and it just begins to lower your self-esteem? You begin to feel smaller. Sometimes it happens in churches where somebody is talking about their, 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 their spiritual life with God, and instead of being encouraged, you just feel, gosh, that's not me. I'm rubbish. What is it if we actually come into the presence of the God who is perfect and the God who is holy? Suddenly we realize how small we are. And that's what was happening in Isaiah that day. Isaiah was actually a guy who was not unimportant. In fact, the, the tradition is that he was the brother, no, his, the king's brother was his father. That means he was the king's nephew. Have we got that right? So he's pretty important. He's artistic, we know that. If you read this book, it's full of fantastic imagery and poetry. This guy can write. Imagine writing a book that 3,000 years later, a composer as good as Handel takes out your words and thinks, I'm going to use them. Eat your heart out, J.K. Rowling. Imagine like that. And suddenly this guy who thought he was something and thought he could do something comes into the presence of God. And it's not just that. Isaiah had spent the last five chapters looking at society around him, seeing all that was broken, rightly, and saying, I can do something. I can speak out. I can fix that. I can deal with the evil around me. And here he is in chapter five, 
And he sees the holiness of God and he just says, what is me? You know, in the last chapter, ch- sorry, chapter 5, he'd, he'd actually gone around saying woe to everybody else. Woe to society. Woe to the j- government. Woe to the, the king. Woe to this. Woe to that. He, he condemned them for all sorts of things. He, for buying too many houses when people were homeless. Does that strike a nerve today? Or for enjoying life but despoiling God's creation. Woe, 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 woe. And you get people today that do that. You'll find them on social media, but you'll find them in lots of other places. And they, they, they have a sense of righteousness. They have a sense of what's wrong in the world. And they go around telling everybody how they're doing the bad things, and they're doing the bad things, and they're doing the bad things, and they don't care, and the government don't, you know, all the rest of it. You, you know what that's like, don't you? You've maybe been caught up in it. But suddenly Isaiah, in the presence of God, looks at himself and says, not woe to them, but woe to me. I'm broken. I'm broken. I'm hopeless. And then, as he feels all of that and realizes he's part of the problem, just like Peter did in that other passage where he says, go away from me, Lord, he sees the angel taking a burning coal from the fire and bringing it to him. And he must think, I'm toast. But the burning coal touches his lips and it takes away all his sin. Your guilt says, God is atoned for. Your sin is gone. And then a word comes that says, whom shall I send and who will go for me? Having been completely torn down in the presence of God, here comes God and saying, I need a partner in my mission. And I want you. The gospel is simply this. It comes and it tells us that we are more hopeless than we ever feared. And we are more wanted than we ever hoped. You are worse than you ever thought you might be. But you are loved more than you ever hoped you could be. And that is the gospel. And Isaiah says, here I am, send me. And God says to him, this job is going to be rubbish. Because you're going to go out there and you're going to preach a message and nobody is going to listen. It's the worst job in the world. But I want you to do it because I want you to do it. I want you to do it for me. Not for the results, not for the glory, not for the praise. No one is going to thank you. I want you just to do it for me. And that is the gospel that comes to us too. Isaiah will speak later of Jesus in his prophecies. He won't know it's Jesus, but he'll talk about the one who comes to atone for our sins, the one who takes his sin upon ourself, the one who takes the thankless path of the suffering servant, the one who goes even to death for him. And that is the gospel that we come to at this place. So here's the challenge. Come and hear as you encounter in the bread and wine. Know your sin and know it is atoned for. Know that you are forgiven and let the meteor crash of God coming for you in this impact in your life. Be available to Him because of what He's done. Let your diaries revolve around His priorities and not what you want to do. Let your service revolve around not your convenience, but His call. 
Let your giving respond not to what you have in excess, but to what He puts on your heart to do. And do the jobs that have no applause, that give no thanks, that earn no merits, simply because God is holy and beautiful and has forgiven you. Amen.